What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of podcasts. I am Stephen Hausman. I'm an assistant professor in the history department at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota, and I'm your host for today's interview. I'm speaking with Moon Ho Zhang. Dr. Zhang is professor of history and the Harry Bridges Endowed Chair in Labor Studies at the University of Washington and is the author of the new book Menace to Empire, Anti-Colonial Solidarities and the Trans-Pacific Origins of the U.S. Security State, which came out with the University of California Press just last year in 2022. Welcome to the New Books Network, Moon. Good to have you here. Uh, Thank you, Steve. Thanks for having me. Uh, Why don't we start, as we always do here on the New Books Network, by just hearing about who you are as a scholar and as an author and a writer. So what is your background? And I'm especially interested in what got you interested in history specifically. Let's see. How far back do you want me to go? As far back as you're willing to go. I have people talk about their childhood sometimes when, when uh, I ask this question. So whatever you think is, is, is interesting and relevant, I'm interested in hearing it. All right. Uh, you know, I, I started getting interested in history when the reality that I was witnessing and experiencing did not correspond to the stuff that I was learning in middle school, high school, probably even earlier, right? Um, so in college... Um, so I went to college in the late 80s, early 90s. There were all these news reports about what was being billed as the Korean black conflict. And, and the history that I had learned like, could not make sense of what I was reading about, what I was hearing about. So I started taking classes in black studies, ethnic studies, Asian American studies. And you know, once I started reading W.E.B. Du Bois, Vincent Harding, Walter Rodney, and, and, and many other folks at Malcolm X, definitely, things started to click. And then I couldn't get enough. And that it was at that point that I decided to, uh, to go to grad school in history. You know, like, like I said a second ago, I ask all of my guests some version of that question. And you, you touched upon a bit of a theme that I often hear in, in the people that I talk to that have this abiding interest in history, that they have this sort of, uh, you know, almost aha moment or, or some moment in their, their young lives where they're looking around the world and thinking, well, something is not being explained to me here. Something here is, is still mysterious to me. And they realize or they recognize that history is one of the, 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 the best avenues for understanding 
many of the world around them. But it sounds like you had a very similar experience. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, and it wasn't really through my history courses in the beginning anyway. Um, it was, uh, I would say, black studies that really made me question, uh, you know, the, the past that I had been taught. Um, but then but then I ended up getting a PhD in history. And what brought you to the topic of the book that we'll be discussing today? Why uh, a book on, on, on this particular topic of American empire and imperial resistance at the end of the 19th and into the early 20th century? You know, I conceived the project many, many years ago. Um, I was, uh, it was even before I finished the my first book, um, and I was preparing for a bunch of uh, undergrad courses in U.S. history, and and the one question that I couldn't really, you know, find an answer to was why U.S. immigration statutes fixated on excluding Asians and radicals in the opening decades of the 20th century. And I sense that there had to be a connection somehow, but, um, and you know, those two targets, uh, radicals, uh, I think usually presumed to be people from Europe and Asians, I think tended to fall into different fields of study. So, so that was the opening question. Um, and, but the historical context of, uh, you know, the early 21st century, I think played a big role in how, uh, you know, I came to frame and approach the project. Um, that is the so-called war on terror beginning in 2001, um, probably preceding 2001, but really uh, became a full-blown global war on terror as it was being billed. Um, and basically the U.S. empire basically claimed the right to kill and incarcerate anybody, you know, living on our planet. So that was the context. And... The more I dug into the archives about immigration statutes, um, you know, the surveillance of radicals, uh, it just became more and more a project about the U.S. empire. Well, let's talk a bit about uh, context, but about the context of, of the, the period that you cover in the book. Can you describe a little bit, and this is going to be a, a big question that I'm going to ask you to answer very briefly, so forgive me, but I'm wondering if you could describe the roots and the extent of American empire building in the kind of Pacific world, across the Pacific, at the very end of the 19th century. Just what's, what's kind of going on in this part of the world, and how is the United States involved in this time period? Well, you know, I think there are different modes of imperial uh, expansion, um, you know, over the course of, well, a, a basic premise, a main premise of the book is that the United States is fundamentally an empire rooted in white supremacy. And I think that begins with the origination, the found, founding of the United States. Um, now, what, what's happening across the Pacific is, you know, the United States joins other European empires in trying to, you know, just open up China to, to foreign trade. Uh, that begins in the early decades of the 19th century. Um, it takes a very martial turn, I would say, with uh, Matthew Perry's mission to Japan in 1853, 1854. Uh, the U.S. also engages in a, in a, in a short but a very brutal war in Korea that most Americans don't know about. That happened in 1871. So the United States is, uh, is definitely, uh, 
has an eye on um, expanding its power and authority across the Pacific. Um, I think the 1890s is definitely a turning point, but you know, it, it what happens in 1898 with the, the beginning of the Spanish-American War had been in the works for many decades, if not centuries. And so, you know, I think most people have heard about the Spanish-American War of 1898, um, which began really with, uh, you know, the w with events down in Cuba, but Assistant Secretary of the Navy Theodore Roosevelt decided to use that particular moment to wage war against the Spanish Empire in the Philippines. So the first shots of the Spanish-American War actually happened in Manila on May 1st, 1898. And after the war, the U.S. claimed, you know, the, the vestiges of the Spanish Empire, um, including the purchase of the Philippines in 1898. Now that begins a set of a, a series of events that would lead to a to an even more brutal war in the Philippines. Um, it's a it's a separate war. It's a longer war. It's a more brutal war. The Philippine American War that begins in 1899, uh, because Filipinos who had been waging war against the Spanish Empire did not want to bow down, did not want to submit to a new empire, the U.S. Empire. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the Philippines, because you, you, you spend a lot of time in the book talking about this moment in American history. You begin the book in, in this moment in American history, too, which, as you said, the United States, it, it acquires the Philippines as a colony in 1898. Can you talk a little bit about what Filipino resistance to American imperialism looked like, sort of what its ideological roots were, and in particular, how the United States responds to this anti-imperial resistance? Yeah, no, I'd say for a very brief moment, a lot of Filipino revolutionaries think the United States could be an ally against the Spanish Empire. Uh, but most of them, many of them begin to re recognize that the United States is now claiming sovereignty over the Philippines. So there is an armed insurrection. Uh, it leads to, um, you know, it, it leads to the brutal Philippine-American War that I was talking about, which officially ends in 1902. Theodore Roosevelt, who was president um, in 1902, uh, proclaimed the end of the Philippine-American War in 1902. But the actual fighting persists for at least another decade. And it was a brutal war. Um, the lower estimates of, uh, you know, the number of Filipinos killed is at about 250,000. And many historians think that the actual number is much, much higher than that. Um, overall, I think there's general discontent um, in the Philippines against the U.S. empire. Now, of course, there are many Filipino elites collaborating with the U.S. empire, but at the same time, I think there's general discontent. And, you know, one of the stories that I include in the book that I really like is, uh, so if uh, the head of the Philippine constabulary, which is basically a, a, a police force um, set up by the by the U.S. Empire, the, the U.S. colonial regime in the Philippines, um, he receives a report about how, you know, he so a, a, an agent of the Philippine constabulary went to a, a movie house, a movie theater, 
And as soon as the, the lights went out and, and there was a display of the American flag on, on the screen, everybody in the audience started hissing. They started, you know, disapproving of the American flag. And what the head of the Philippine Constabulary noted in the margins was, um, I've seen the same thing at a different movie theater. So in these everyday moments, you can begin to sense how widespread, you know, Filipino grievances against the U.S. empire were at the time. And in the United States, among uh, white Americans and powerful white Americans, especially uh, Filipino resistance is increasingly racialized as well. Could you talk a bit about this process and what its implications were for not just the Philippines, but for other nations and people around the Pacific world and their relationship to the United States and this this growing American empire, too? Um, yeah, well, you know, Filipinos are racialized in particular ways during the Philippine-American War, I think largely to justify the mass killing of Filipinos. Um, so they were, you know, presented, projected, represented as so-called savages. Um, and and that helped to justify um, U.S. military tactics um, by racializing Filipinos as so-called savages, um, they had to, the U.S. military then argued that they had to justify to savage warfare to out-savage the so-called savages, right? So that helped to justify the military strategies um, adopted by the U.S. military. Um now, I think it begins the, the racial rhetoric, the racial discourse around the time takes a takes a significant turn with the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905. Uh, Japan, which is a, an ambitious rising empire across the Pacific, wins that war, a war that was largely fought in the Korean Peninsula. Um, and I think that war had two significant effects. One was, you know, people really um, committed to empire building around white supremacy. They begin to see that war as a threat, a marker of Japan posing a threat to their own empires. The other effect is that a lot of colonized and racialized subjects around the world begin to take inspiration from that war. So a lot of African-Americans, including, you know, uh, people like W.E.B. Du Bois, begin to romanticize Japan as, as a force, as a global power who could, that might lead the darker world uh, against white supremacy, against empire. So um, I want to get a little bit of ahead of, of ourselves here mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and, and kind of bring this up to the present day just, just briefly, because one of the big arguments that you make in the book and, you know, you talked about how one of the, the sort of uh, inciting events of this, of, of you writing this book is, is the war on terror and the, the massive growth of the U.S. security state in the 21st century. And one of the arguments that you're making is that American empire building and the conflict in the Philippines and this growing uh, sort of unease at uh, Japanese empire building, uh, that, that all of this is going to lay the foundations of the modern U.S. security state. Can you explain a little bit about the connections that you see 
here uh, between sort of uh, uh, American security imperialism today and uh, the, 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 the period that you're talking about in the book at the start of the 20th century? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think there are lots of uh, connections, parallels, legacies between what, what's happening at the turn of the 20th century and and what happened at the turn of the 21st century. So it, it's kind of eerie, actually, because if you read some of the speeches by Theodore Roosevelt about the, the supposed global war against anarchism, and, and you read those speeches next to George W. Bush's uh, speeches about the war on the global war on terror. I mean, they are so similar in, in eerie ways. Um, so I think one of the one of the things that I figured out was that this idea of sedition, right? Um, so in the, it ha- has colonial roots. Um, so in the Philippines, for example, in 1902, the, the Philippine Commission, which is uh, which basically ruled over the Philippines, uh, decreed a, a law that they call the Sedition Act. Um, and what that law said was that anybody in the Philippines who was organizing or articulating any kind of anti-colonial sentiment, um, that would be outlawed. So it became criminal to voice any kind of opposition to the U.S. empire. That was now labeled seditious. And 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 labeling something as seditious meant that it was supposedly a threat to national security. And so a, a main argument of the book is that the, you know, this national security state as we know it, in, including, you know, uh, intelligence agencies, immigration statutes, and policies around surveillance, um, they really begin to take shape in the early decades of the 20th century, and, and much of that effort is about securing empire. It's about weeding out what, what is now being labeled as seditious or revolutionary. The United States does not exist in a vacuum in this period, though. It's just one of, you know, quite a few growing global empires at the start of the 20th century. I'm curious what kind of connections you see between, say, the American Empire and the British Empire, for example, in terms of what kinds of ideologies they are sharing with one another, what kinds of tactics they are learning from one another, and how they are uh, responding to the respective anti-colonial movements that are going on within their imperial borders. So what what is what's the United States look like within this kind of broader context of uh, European and American empire building here at the start of the 20th century? Yeah, I know there are there, there are weird, odd, unexpected alliances and and and, and conflicts, comp- a sense of competition emerging, uh, I, I would say especially uh, before, during and after World War 1. Um, so, you know, during World War One, the the British Empire, the U.S. Empire and the Japanese Empire fought on the same side. Right. Um, and in Paris, um, you know, when when these imperial powers met to talk about how to conclude the war, Japan suggested something along the lines of a racial equality clause. Um, and Woodrow Wilson and 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 his European allies shut that down. Uh, they refused to adopt that clause. 
And so there's definitely a rising tension between putative allies, for example, between Japan and the United States, and, and, and that anti-Japanese or the perception of a Japanese threat to the U.S. empire really begins to take root. Now, I, as I suggested earlier, it really begins with the Russo-Japanese War, but it begins to, to really become entrenched in, in, in terms of how the U.S. empire begins to perceive threats around the world. Now, in terms of Britain, I, I would say that the, the British really um, took the lead in terms of, uh, you know, modern, what we might call intelligence uh, networks, efforts to curb anti-colonial movements. And I would say that 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 system, that structure begins to take root in South Asia, in India. Um, so if you look at British laws, for example, they also talk about sedition, acts against sedition. And again, it's being defined as anybody who is organizing, mobilizing, articulating anti-colonial movements. And so I think there's a lot of uh, collaboration between the British and U.S. governments. And one of the chapters that, that I write about is about the Godard movement, South Asian revolutionaries living in North America and Canada and the United States trying to organize against the British Empire. And, and so the British and the U.S. government definitely collaborate in, in targeting these revolutionaries who are struggling against, who are uh, openly calling for the overthrow of the British Empire. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You know, hearing you, hearing you talk, talk about, uh, your, in your answers to the last couple of questions, the word sedition, and in the book, of course, as well, the word sedition comes up a lot. And uh, I just got struck by, by a question that, that might seem kind of basic or maybe a little obvious, but I want to ask it anyway. Why? So sedition, obviously, it's not a new idea at the start of the 20th century, that in the United States, you can go back to, you know, sedition acts from the late 18th and early 19th century. But it mm -hmm. seems like in this moment that you're talking about, the turn of the 20th century, sedition is kind of the word on everybody's lips, or at least, you know, people with power that are setting imperial policy and stuff. So I guess the, that's a long way of getting to, to the question, which is, why do people suddenly seemingly care about sedition so much in this time period? Why is it that sedition becomes this like, almost like, like, like boogeyman in the, the minds of so many imperial officials in this moment, do you think? Well, I think it is connected to the, uh, the, the war on anarchism in part. Uh, so, you know, I'm sure you're aware that, you know, there were these spectacular acts of violence against uh, leading government officials in the 1890s all around the world, but especially in Europe. So I think this idea that, uh, you know, that, that state officials are being targeted by politicized people, I think that begins to take root. 
Um, but I think it's also because it is in the opening decades of the 20th century that the idea of the nation, the nation state, um, be, becomes widely accepted, uh, becomes the norm, and, and, and really becomes the crucial part of the hegemonic world order. And so, you know, uh, it, it is a world dominated by empires, right? Um, but at the same time, people like Roosevelt begin talking about, you know, begin to refer to empires as big nations and colonies as little nations, right? And I think these terms are still with us today. And, and so the idea of the nation becomes naturalized, sanctified, and I think sedition becomes a very convenient um, rhetoric or a device to, to criminalize anti-colonial acts as acts against the nation, acts against the nation state. So I think it becomes a very powerful weapon to try to repress and suppress radical movements that are calling for the end of white supremacy and empire. We've been talking a lot about uh, East Asia and about Southeast Asia, but really this is an era when, uh, you know, the United States in particular is gaining colonial uh, possessions, acquisitions, not just in, in, in that part of the world, but really all across the Pacific. And Hawaii plays a pretty important role in this story and, and in your book. Can you talk a little bit about the critical role that Hawaii plays in the story, in particular in uh, racializing the Japanese empire, in particular in the lead up to the Second World War? Um, yeah, no, I mean, Hawaii is a, a definitely a, a central part of the story that I'm trying to tell. Um, so Hawaii's sugar industry really takes off at, in the closing decades of the 19th century. Um, in part because of the disruption of the U.S. Civil War. Um, so what happens is, uh, you know, Louisiana is the center of sugar production before the Civil War, but because the war disrupts sugar production there, it, it creates a huge market for sugar, especially along the West Coast. And, and Hawaii becomes the site of, you know, major sugar production. And Japanese workers, by the turn of the 20th century, they are by far the majority of the plantation labor force in Hawaii. Now, these are workers who have no connections to the Japanese government. Um, but, you know, when, when Japanese workers, um, once the, Hawaii becomes a territory of the United States, um, the contract labor system that had been, you know, that had that had guided the growth of the Hawaiian sugar industry um, is, is outlawed um, at, it, within now the U.S. territory of Hawaii. And Japanese workers begin organizing. And Japanese plantation workers organize a huge strike on the island of Oahu uh, in 1909. Now, in the wake of that plantation labor strike in 1909, um, planners, and most of them are, you know, American families, um, white families uh, from the United States. Some of them had gone to Hawaii uh, as missionaries, and they bought up a lot of land in Hawaii. 
Um, they conceived the idea of, uh, you know, the need to repress, undermine Japanese workers organizing in Hawaii. And so they begin to recruit workers from the Philippines, which is now a colony of the United States. And very quickly after the 1909 labor strike, Filipinos become a significant um, population in Hawaii. Now, planners are arguing that, you know, Filipinos will be better workers. They won't try to organize. But what ends up happening in 1920 is Japanese workers and Filipino workers both go out on strike in 1920. And, and so in the wake of that massive strike, uh, planners begin deploying a, a, a new argument that Japanese workers in Hawaii pose a, a military threat to U.S. interests in Hawaii. And they begin arguing that they are leading uh, a pan-Asian movement against the United States, against the U.S. empire in Hawaii. And so the, the kinds of racial arguments that had been in the works in the Philippines, um, you know, especially in the wake of the Russo-Japanese War, they become very prominent in Hawaii to try to curb, repress, and criminalize people working within the labor movement in Hawaii. And the anti-Japanese uh, component of, of that discourse becomes really pronounced after 1920 in particular. Another year that, that really changes everything, uh, not just, uh, of course, in the United States, but, but, but globally, is 1917, which is the year, of course, when uh, you have the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, which overthrows the, the Russian monarchy and sets up a socialist government in, uh, uh, in the now Soviet Union. So can you talk a little bit about the importance of 1917 to the story that you're telling here? How does this revolution, how does the Russian Revolution uh, uh, change how the United States, kind of speaking broadly here, how American officials and people with power in the United States, how they see anti-colonialism in places like the Philippines, how you see this sort of elevation of threat perception in, in the wake of 1917? How does this perceived uh, uh, new threat of communism, how does it change American approaches and tactics when viewing these anti-colonial movements within their own empire? When V.I. Lenin um, reestablishes the Communist International, the Third International, um, he really insists that that the the international communist movement really had to tackle the question of colonialism and so if you look at uh, you know the publications put out by the third international in the 1920s many of them confront address colonialism head-on and that begins to inspire movements around the world um, you know, Ho Chi Minh, for example, said that he never got Karl Marx, um, that he couldn't really ever make his way through, uh, through capital, for example. But he said that when he read Lenin and Lenin's position against imperialism, uh, Ho Chi, the, the man who would later name himself Ho Chi Minh said that, you know, he started crying. Um, and he took inspiration from the Third International. 
Um, he would be there in the founding of the French Communist Party. And so the communist movement, and I think it's a history that we tend to forget, really took a, a very direct, explicit position against colonialism. And, and, and so in reference to your question about how U.S. officials began to perceive it, I think, it, 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 you know, the, the communist movement is added to all of the uh, intelligence reports that they have been accumulating for decades. And so the idea of international communism being a critical, now a critical force in the movement against racism and colonialism, on the one hand, um, it begins to uh, connect with, at least in U.S. intelligence officials' reports and their conceptions of the world, somehow they begin to see that as uh, an alliance with the Pan-Asian movement led by the Japanese Empire, at least in their reports, in their perceptions of the world. So all of the, you know, the, the policies and discourses that I, that I talked about in terms of, you know, Japan, Imperial Japan, the Japanese Empire leading the darker world against racism and colonialism now melds with this perception of international communism being a threat to white supremacy and empire. And so, you know, I've read so many reports from U.S. intelligence officials really con trying to connect Imperial Japan and international communism with anti-colonial movements around the world. Now, the irony was that, you know, the, the Japanese empire could not have been more anti-radical, right? And so the kinds of anti-radical laws that are being passed in the United States, I mean, you can see similar policies in Japan. And so a lot of the policies on the ground um, are, are, are really the same in Japan as in the United States. But U.S. officials begin to project both Imperial Japan and international communism as, as working together at, to threaten the U.S. empire around the world. So as we begin to to wrap up here, I've actually had a, a few guests on recently who are, uh, you know, have, have recently written books about um, the, the kind of the, the Pacific world, generally speaking. And um, we're covering this book and these other books about, about Hawaii and, and about the Pacific world broadly on the American West channel of the New Books Network. Mm -hmm. But in, in, in uh, our conversation so far, we haven't really talked about the American West as such. And yeah. in, indeed, ha having read the book, you know, the American West specifically is not particularly present in the book. Yet, I think, and I, I wanted to, to talk with you about your book on this channel in particular, um, you know, the, I, I saw a lot of connections between the story that you're telling here and uh, the history of the American West itself. So I guess I'll, I'll turn this into a question by asking, how do you or do you at all see this as a Western story? And if so, how is it the case? What kind of connections do you see between the American West and this wider Pacific imperial story? 
Um, yeah, I mean, especially toward the end of the book, I do write about, you know, California, um, the, the Pacific coast of North America quite a bit, because a lot of the people being monitored by, uh, by different U.S. officials are based, are, are, are located along the Pacific coast. Um, but I guess to, uh, to broaden the question a little bit, I would say, you know, all of North America is is ultimately a colonized space, right? And, and so a part of how the U.S. empire operates is that lands and peoples that had once been deemed foreign, right, um, they get domesticated. So I think, you know, for example, like we don't really perceive of California as a foreign space or at once at one time being a foreign space so it gets naturalized as a domestic space um, but if you think about it in the you know definitely until the middle of the 19th century you could not have been like California could not have been um, perceived as more foreign right to the United States so I think the larger project has a lot of resonance with what has come to be known as the American West um, in terms of trying to think through the historical process, the historical processes behind claiming, contesting, and, and erasing empire in U.S. history. And, and to me, that is the history of the American West. So as we begin to to wrap up, I always like to ask my guests uh, to put themselves in the shoes of someone reading their book. And after they, 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 you know, read the last page and close it and put it back on the shelf, thinking back on that book, uh, you know, a year or two years or five years down the line, what would you hope that a reader would remember or would come away understanding from your book, thinking back on it uh, further on down? Oh, that's a tough question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> everyone, everyone always says that. That's why I keep on asking it. <laughs> well, you know, one thing that I emphasize to my students is that once you begin to see empire in U.S. history, um, you can't unsee it. So that's one of the main takeaways that I hope readers get is to really, uh, you know, to begin to see and to reckon with empire in U.S. history and, and to really see to begin to see the United States as ultimately, and I said this earlier, uh, as an empire, um, fundamentally an empire rooted in white supremacy. Another, uh, you know, aspect that I, I hope that readers will, um, something that readers will take away from the book would be to rethink um, Asian Americans um, in U.S. history. I think uh, Asian Americans tend to be portrayed as, you know, prototypical immigrants who helped to make the nation of immigrants who were unfairly excluded and then betrayed by that so-called nation of immigrants. Um, more recently, since the 1960s, I think Asian Americans have been portrayed as the, you know, so-called model minority. 
in this book, I present Asian Americans, uh, you know, these uh, people involved in, in these revolution, revolutionary movements against empire, including the U.S. empire and the British empire. I present Asian Americans as racialized, as radicalized subjects of the U.S. empire. Um, and, and I think if we approach ourselves as Asian Americans within from that position, I think it can open up new possibilities in terms of how we approach and interpret the past, but also in terms of defining our own politics in, in terms of how we want to grapple with the United States, with the U.S. empire today. I know that as, as a teacher and now someone who has read this book, that when fall semester rolls around and I'm teaching my U.S. history since 1865 course and I get to my section on late 19th and early 20th century radicalism, that uh, I can absolutely no longer teach it as a story of, you know, radicalized uh, uh, and politicized Europeans coming to the United States that I have to absolutely change my own teaching because of this book. So in that regard, I think it was very successful, at least for, for me, thinking about how I present this to, to students for sure. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And then for my last question, I always like to get a preview from my guests about uh, what they are working on next. I know that this book has not been out for very long, but if I know historians, they uh, always got a couple projects spinning at any one time. So I'm curious what you've been working on uh, in the interim and maybe what we can look forward to seeing from you in the, uh, the coming years. Um, yeah, so I don't think I'm quite ready to go back to the archives. I don't know about you, but I'm just feeling very tired at the moment and the idea of going back to the archives to begin a new massive monograph seems a little bit too uh, premature for me at the moment. So I'm working on a synthesis of Asian American history and as you might guess it's going to be a synthesis that that has a, a focus on race and empire. So really to try to critique the notion of the United States as a nation of immigrants through a, a new interpretation of Asian Americans. So that's what I'm working on right now. Um, hopefully it will be out in, in, in the near future, but, but you know how long writing takes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I do know that. Uh, and you're doing a lot of reading, I'm sure, than if you're writing some kind of synthetic take to oh, yeah. probably the stack, yeah. stack of books next to you that's very tall. <laughs> yep. And I'm, I'm learning a lot in the process. Excellent. Um, Dr. Moon Ho Zhang is professor of history and is the Harry Bridges Endowed Chair in Labor Studies at the University of Washington. And his new book is Menace to Empire, Anti-Colonial Solidarities and the Trans-Pacific Origins of the U.S. Security State, which came out with the University of California Press just last year in 2022. Thank you so much for joining with me and sharing your work with me today, Moon. Thank you very much, Steve.